The following is a message from Pastor Ellis Orozco of First Baptist Richardson. For more information, please visit fbcr.org. Amen. Thank you for worshiping this morning. We're going to continue worshiping by going to his word. Uh, but we are, as you, in case you hadn't noticed, we're celebrating. It's Christmas. It's right. It's Christmas. The reason I know this is because our Christmas tree is up in my living room. The Christmas tree is up. How many have your Christmas tree up already? It's there. Okay. Yes. You're in the Christmas spirit. The tree is up. The other reason I know this is because uh, my granddaughters have already emailed me or text me, sorry, texted me the links to all the things that they want on Amazon for Christmas. So I have all those links. This is the way we do it nowadays. They text you the links. They don't even have to talk to you. They just text you the links to what they want for Christmas. And there's a song in the air, lights in the night sky, and secret Santas are running around everywhere giving gifts. It's Christmas. Secret Santa, that's an interesting thing. There's an interesting history to the idea of the secret Santa. We're not sure exactly where it came from, but most people trace it back to one particular person, uh, a man named uh, Larry David uh, Stewart, yeah, Stewart, Larry Dean Stewart, I'm sorry, Larry Dean Stewart, a particular person at a particular moment in life, Larry Dean Stewart spent the last 25 years of his life handing out $100 bills at at Christmas. And uh, over 25 years, he gave out more than a million dollars in $100 bills to complete strangers. He would go around, complete strangers, and he was dubbed Secret uh, Santa, but his story began before that. The inspiration to his, to his giving um, the last 25 years of his life began in, in a day earlier in his life, uh, a difficult day in his life when he had no money, not even enough money to buy a meal. And I want you to hear the story of that first, the birth of the spirit of Secret Santa, uh, Larry, Newton, I mean, Larry Stewart. So watch this. Merry Christmas to you, sweetie. It's the one story that never gets old. Every year we ride with Secret Santa as he and his elves hand out hundreds of hundreds to random strangers across the country. Oh my God, this is crazy. You've no doubt seen the happy endings, but almost no one knows the humble beginning. Thank you so much. The legend of Secret Santa can actually be traced back to a single act of kindness in Houston, Mississippi. It was 1971. A homeless man had wandered into town, and he was starving. The stranger stopped here at the Dixie Diner and ordered the biggest breakfast on the menu. His plan was to sneak out before the bill came. But the owner, a guy named Ted Horn, sensed what was about to happen. So he snuck up behind the guy with a $20 bill in his hand and said, I think you may have dropped this. And that was the end of it, as far as he's concerned. David and Sandra Horn are Ted's children. They say their dad died in 2009, but that one gift keeps giving. That one little $20, just look what it did. It's difficult to imagine that. The money went to a man named Larry Stewart, who vowed that day if he ever got rich, he would return the favor in spades. Larry eventually made millions in cable and long distance and became the first secret Santa. His identity revealed only after he was diagnosed with terminal cancer in 2006. Which brings us to Larry's good friend. Larry was hospitalized. The current Secret Santa. And I went up to visit him at night, moonlight shining in, kind of surreal. So I asked Larry, I said, do you have any regrets? And he said, yes. 
I said, what is it? He said, I just wish I could have helped more people. After giving away more than a million dollars to total strangers, Larry still felt more needed to be done. So that's when I assumed the responsibility. Over the last decade, this new secret Santa has run the total to more than $2 million. And all from 20 bucks. Talk about happy returns. I want us to think this morning and frame the scripture we're going to be reading around this idea. Small beginnings. A $20 bill. A baby in a manger. Small beginnings. And the idea of the gift, the giver, and the joy. So with that framework, let's go to God's word. In John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, as the gospel writer John shares with us the Christmas story. And this is what the word of God says. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He, he came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. The first decision that each gospel writer had to make was how to start the story. Where, where to jump into the story and how to start. Matthew begins his story, the story of Jesus, with this great genealogy. He traces Jesus through these series of begats all the way back to Abraham. It was important for Matthew and his mostly Jewish audience at that time to understand that Jesus was attached to Abraham, the great father of faith. Mark starts his gospel story uh, with a lonely voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist crying out, prepare the way for the Lord. When we first meet Jesus in the gospel of Mark, he's already an adult. Luke, most famously, begins the story with the birth narratives. And so there's Mary and there's Joseph. And they're on the way to Bethlehem, but there's no room at the end, so there's a stable and there's a manger and there are angels singing in the night sky. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. John, in his gospel, takes a different approach. He, he begins the story with this beautiful gift from God at that first Christmas. This gift of the incarnation of his one and only begotten son, 
Emmanuel, which means God is with us. It is this moment in history where the divine, divine comes into the world and takes on flesh, where God becomes one of us. In order to tell that story, he has to go to the, to the beginning. And I mean the very beginning, the before time beginning, before time had any meaning. He goes to the very beginning, before quarks or leptons or hadrons, before matter, there was the word. There was Jesus, John tells us. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God spoke the world into being, that God created the universe through the spoken word. And then God said, let there be light. And now John informs us that that word that God first spoke to create the heavens and the earth, that that word that proceeded from the lips of God was in fact the pre-incarnate Jesus, that it was Jesus who was the word. It was the son who was the word that created everything that has been created. Now, I understand that that is a faith statement that I can't, I can't prove it. I can only point you to what John says in his gospel. I can only point you to what the word of God says, and either you believe it or you don't. But if you believe it, if you are like me, and one who has given their lives to this faith statement that Jesus is the eternal word of God, then the message this morning is for you. This message is for those who actually believe it. Those who believe it with all their heart, all their soul, and all their strength. Trying to convince you that it's true, I'm going to have to leave for another message. This message is for those of us who embrace that and who are trying to prepare our hearts for Christmas. And and to those of you who believe it, who believe with all your heart that Jesus is the eternal Word of God, for you this morning in preparation for Christmas, I would say that there are certain ramifications to that belief. And this is what John unpacks. In fact, he's going to unpack it for his entire gospel. What are the ramifications? If you are one who says, yes, Jesus Christ is the eternal word of God for me, then what are the ramifications of that belief? Well, the first nine verses of John chapter one, they, they set it up for us. They, he, John sets up his thesis in the first nine verses. And his thesis is this. Jesus Christ is the eternal begotten son of God. Jesus Christ is the incarnation of God himself. Jesus Christ is the eternal word. That's the thesis of John's entire gospel. He will spend the rest of the gospel unpacking what he says in the first nine verses. But then the most striking part of it comes in verse 10. The, the, the narrative takes a sharp turn in verse 10. After John has, has laid out his thesis, Jesus is the eternal word of God, in verse 10, he begins to talk about those who didn't receive it, those who did not receive the message. Look at what he says, verse 10 and 11, where John says, he was in the world, Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. He comes to his own, John says, but his own did not receive him. Now, historically, that has been translated to mean that what John is saying is that Jesus came to the Jews, that Jesus was born, of course, Jewish, 
and that he came to his own, the people, the children of God from the Old Testament, the Jews, and that the Jews, his own, largely did not receive him. Although the early Christian church was started by Jewish Christians and it were the Jews who spread the word, but many, many in the Jewish community, of course, did not receive him. And certainly that is true to a degree. Um, But it doesn't let the rest of us who are not Jews off the hook. You see, because what, what John is saying here in the grander scheme of things is that Jesus came and when he came, there are those who heard his message and who saw him and heard his message and left without being changed. There are those for whom they came to Jesus, they heard him, they understood the message, and they left unchanged. It didn't change anything about their lives. And what I want you to see is that actually, that word applies to, to all of us. What has Jesus changed for you? If you are, like me, one who confesses that Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God, that Jesus Christ is the eternal Word of God, if you, if you believe that, then the, the operative question is, what has that changed in your life? What, how are you different having that knowledge, having that understanding? What differentiates you, then, from anyone else? I've said recently that it seems to me that it's getting more difficult to be a confessing, professing Christian in the face of a rapidly changing culture, and some would argue a rapidly disintegrating culture. It seems to be getting more and more difficult to profess, to confess. It seems like it's getting more difficult to hold on to certain Christian values, morals, and beliefs in the face of an increasingly antagonistic um, culture. I said not long ago, and I still think it's true, that in this day and time, part of a pastor's task, an important part of a pastor's task, is to prepare people for persecution. To prepare people to learn how to live in a world that is increasingly antagonistic to their faith. I still believe that to be true. So the first question in that preparation, the first question is the same question that is the preparation for Christmas. The first question is, what difference has Jesus made in your life? That if you are one who professes that this is the eternal word of God, how now does that differentiate you from anyone else? And, and it has to be, as I read scripture, it has to be the message of Christmas. It has to be this radical love ethic of Jesus Christ where the Bible says God is love, where the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That the motivation be, behind that first Christmas morning, the motivation behind the, the incarnation is God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. 
So what has changed in your life? What differentiates you? In what ways are you different for that confession of faith? That's the first question of John chapter 1. But then John doesn't leave it there. He shifts again. Uh, He shifts again in verse uh, 12. Uh, He shifts from talking about those who didn't believe, those who didn't accept the message, to those who did. And he says in verses 12 and 13, listen to what he says. He says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will. In other words, not the normal way, the physical way, but born of God. Those of us, John says, who believe in Jesus have become children of God. Now I want you to think for a moment with me about some of the implications of that statement. It's a difficult statement to swallow if you think about it. Because if he is saying that those of us who receive Jesus now become in Jesus Christ, we become children of God. The corollary to that is what were we before? We received Jesus. If we, as Jesus says in John chapter 3, must be born again, we must be born of God. That first, at first we're born humans and then we have to be born of God. And if, if John chapter 1 is correct, and I believe that it is, that when we come to Jesus, we become children of God, then that means that before we became children of God, we were children of something else. What were we children of? Children of the flesh, children of the spirit of this world, children not of God. That there is a very ugly and difficult conclusion, difficult to swallow here, but I think it's a conclusion that's, that's vitally important for us to understand, and that is that left to our own devices, in our inherent nature, In our birth in the flesh, left to our own devices, we are a self-destructive creature. We are self-destructive creatures. Listen, if the history of the 20th century has taught us anything, it has taught us that we are, left to our own devices, self-annihilators. We are self-destructive creatures. And left to our own devices, if Facebook has taught us anything, we will act and speak in ways that are antithetical to the spirit of Christ. Just look at our history. Two world wars. Genocide in Cambodia and Germany and Bosnia and Rwanda and Iraq and Turkey and more recently in Burma and Ethiopia and Syria and China. Unless we get too self-righteous, even in our own country. Dark and difficult wounds, even in our own country. You see, left to our own devices, apart from the spirit of Christ, 
We are self-destructive creatures. This, I believe, is at the heart of what John is trying to say. But what I want you to hear, though, is that in John chapter 1, he doesn't leave it there. That the only reason John wants to point out that left to ourselves, we are not children of God, that left to ourselves without Jesus, we do not operate in the Spirit. We operate in a Spirit actually that is antithetical to the Spirit of Christ, that left to ourselves, the only reason he is pointing this out is that he's setting us up. He's setting us up. He's giving us the situation, the real situation of our lives, in order then to give us the solution. And he will spend the rest of his gospel on the solution and the solution is Jesus. Jesus is the solution to our self-destructive nature. Jesus is the solution to our, to our problem, our sin problem. So the second question that, that it begs is, what are you without Jesus? Who are you without Jesus? And John answers the question, and then he sets us up for the solution. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. <clears throat> he says, the word Jesus, the word who is Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the hope that we celebrate at Christmas season. John will spend the rest of his gospel unpacking that, that he is the hope for all humankind. He is the hope of the entire world. He not only created the world, he sustains the world, and he is the hope of the world for our future. And if we are going to celebrate Jesus in earnest this year, then we have to begin there. We have to begin with this stark reality. That without Jesus, we are self-destructive creatures. But that in Jesus, we become something else. We become children of God and that this is our great hope. So as you go through this Christmas season, I'm going to ask you to live with three questions. I'm going to give them to you right now. So you might want to write them down. If you have my memory, you definitely need to write them down. Because I do, I want you to live with these three questions. This is a message that is geared towards preparing us for Christmas. It's preparing us for what's coming in three weeks if you've started your countdown. So three questions. The first one is what difference has Jesus made in your life? What difference tomorrow on Monday morning when you wake up, what difference is Jesus making in your life? On a daily basis, it's an everyday question. What difference is Jesus going to make in my life today? Because frankly, that's all you get for sure is one day. So what difference is he going to make? The second question that I think is important, especially in the day and times that we're living in, is what great question are you wrestling with because of your faith in Jesus? What great struggle are you having right now in your own life because of your faith in Jesus? What, what great pain are you dealing with? And how can Jesus make a difference in that pain? And the third question is, what great joy have you experienced because of your faith in Jesus? What great joy. There is the gift. 
There is the giver and there is the joy. I told you, that's the framework. The gift, in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh. The giver, for God so loved the world that he gave. And the joy, we have seen his glory and it is the glory of God the joy. I started this message with the story of Larry Dean Stewart, that original secret Santa, right? And his story of being penniless, so much so that he couldn't afford breakfast and, and the, the diner owner giving him $20, which eventually translated into more than a million dollars being given at Christmas. His best friend, after he passed, his best friend took over and is the new secret Santa. You heard that. But uh, a couple years ago, he kind of put a twist on the secret Santa thing. And he decided, he decided what we all eventually learn, the joy of the gift and the joy of giving. And so I want you to watch what he did a couple years ago with the secret Santa. Watch this. Earlier this month, in Kansas City, Missouri, the Jackson County Sheriff's Department was out looking for people. And when they spotted a subject, they went after him in a sting operation, the likes of which this country has never seen. Hello, ma'am. Your vehicle was targeted. What do you mean? Oh, my gosh. Okay. What made this operation especially unusual was the man behind it. Good morning. A fellow in a red hat, known to these men only as Secret Santa. We got a mission today to go out and do random acts of kindness. Every year, this anonymous, wealthy businessman gives out about $100,000 worth of $100 bills to random strangers. But But this year, instead of doing it all himself, he deputized these deputies to give away much of it. Let's start with 1000 And so, armed to the teeth with Benjamins, the officers went out to do Santa's bidding. On a red and color Chevy Cavalier. They specifically went after people they thought would appreciate it most. Cars driving while dented or out on Bondo were likely targets. Merry Christmas. You're kidding. See that? Yes. Oh, my God. No. <laughs> Most people weren't just blown away. Thank you so much. Most people were brought to tears. Did that make your day better? Their reactions, a combination of really needing the money. Are you serious right now? And being caught so off guard. Hello. He just looked straight at me and turned around and pulled me over with no car. Hold on. How you doing, ma'am? I'm good until you pulled me over. Okay. Well, on behalf of Secret Santa, he wants you to have this. Okay? Jessica Rodriguez, a mother of three, told the deputy he saved her Christmas. I wasn't going to be able to get the kids anything. Well, I hope you maybe get your kids something with them. As always, moments like that are the main mission here. All right, you have a good holiday season. But this year, Secret okay. Santa also had a secret agenda. What do you want the officers to get out of this? Joy. You know, as tough as they are, they have hearts that are bigger than the world. Let's face it. It hasn't been a good year for law enforcement. Copy, thank you. But for the vast majority of decent officers who will never make headlines, Secret Santa offered this gift. Appreciate it, man. Can I help out? A chance to be the bearer of good news for a change. Congratulations. A chance to really help the homeless, to thank the law abiders, to see hands up in celebration, 
and then be assaulted in the best possible way. There were a lot of hugs. Our body cameras took a real beating, but it was worth it just to see people trust again and to see cops You're surrender. You have a good holiday. <laughs> we were in New York City. Yeah, you can clap if you want to. That is, that's awesome. <clears throat> we were in New York City for Thanksgiving, and Priscilla and I took our two youngest granddaughters, Eden and Keely, 13 and 7, uh, with us, and we told them that they each had $100. We showed them the $100 bill, said, we're going to hold on to it for you. But, but you each have $100 to spend any way you want. Uh, but when the $100 runs out, that's it. Which, in my contention, that, that saved me hundreds of dollars, actually. <laughs> because I noticed how they thought in earnest about each, each purchase, right? Do I really want to spend it on this? We'd be walking down the street and said, y'all want, a, y'all want a snow cone? They'd say, our money or your money, right? <laughs> no, no, I'm buying, I'm buying, right? They suddenly became very conscientious about the money. Um, but Keely, the 13-year-old, her very first purchase about $12 was a little trinket that she bought for her mother. She bought a gift for her mother. Eden had gone through, blown through $90. Towards the end of the, uh, she's seven. She had blown through $90 and we were in a, we were in a gift shop and I, I told her, well, what about your mom? You haven't bought anything for your mom yet. And she looked and said, oh yeah. How much do I have? $10, you have $10. What about this toy? She, she pulled off this toy. It's a, it's a fidget. It's a poppet, right? This big with the kids right now. They love these poppets. It's a little toy, little rubber toy, $10. She says, I think my mom would like this. And I'm thinking, really? Yes. She could take it to work and use it at work. So you're buying this for your mom. Yes, it's for my mom. I said, okay, but if we buy it, you can't open up the package and use it. It's for your mom. She said, well, I have to try it out, right? Make sure it works. I thought about that. um, And I thought to myself, you know, I was exactly the same way when I was her age. If you see, go into my mom's photo albums now. um, She still lives in the same home that I grew up in. And if you go to the photo albums, you'll see familiar spaces with trees. And you'll see me at seven uh, sitting by the Christmas tree with just dozens of toys all for me. And I remember that feeling of getting those beautiful toys on Christmas morning. But it seems to me that something happens in the maturation process, right, as human beings. At some point in that process of maturing, um, we come to enjoy giving way more than receiving. Amen? We come to this place where we say, the real joy is in giving. And the real joy of Christmas, that very first Christmas, John tells us, in the beginning, in the beginning, and the word became flesh. God's gift to us, the gift, the giver, and the joy. I pray that he'll prepare your hearts to experience that this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your love. We thank you for all that you give us and all that you are to us. We thank you for loving us with an inexplicable, unfathomable, 
unconditional love. We can't even begin, Father, to comprehend the love you have for us. And if I had a thousand lives, a million lives to live on this earth, I could never pay you back for what you've given to me. So, Father, we just pray that this Christmas season you would begin even now to work in our hearts your love, your spirit, your life-giving power in our lives as we face this Christmas season. Help us to live for you. Help us to enjoy the gift, to enjoy the giver, and to enjoy the joy that you bring to our lives. Prepare our hearts, Father, now for what you will do with us this Christmas. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.